Welcome to episode 27 of Flying Podcast. In this, the second part of the DHFS podcasts, I interview squadron leader Jason Bowes and master aircrew Graham Longmuir. They're both from 60 Squadron, responsible for training pilots and crewmen on multi-engine helicopters here at RAF Shawbury. I also talked to a couple of RAF students, Flight Lieutenants Keith Lamb and Becky Corrigan, and also to Corporal Neil Moncur, who's Head of Flight Planning, and lastly to Paul Gresty of the Met Office. The first guys up in the podcast are Jace and Graham, to give us an overview of how they train pilots and crewmen on the twin-engined Griffin helicopter. They refer to the course as MIRU, which is the acronym for the Multi-Engine Advanced Rotary Wing course, which they teach here on 60 Squadron. Uh, good afternoon, Jason and uh, Graham. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, first of all, let me just establish you are both uh, 60 Squadron. Yes. Yes. And you are involved in the training uh, multi-engine advanced rotary wing here at... Uh, That's right. Shawbury. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. So first things then, um, let me start by asking you, do all the students that have gone through the, the single engine come onto the twin engine course? Not all of them, no. The vast majority of the Royal Navy personnel leave at, leave at that point. All of the Army personnel leave at that point. And a small proportion of the Royal Navy join their Air Force colleagues to come on to 60 Squadron. And uh, the reason is that, that they are pre-selected for search and rescue training. And uh, the Griffin is a useful introduction for them for their, for their training in that respect. And some of them are being pre-selected nowadays for... Uh, support helicopter Merlin flying, which uh, the aircraft is destined to uh, go to the Navy in the uh, short to medium term. Okay. And all of the twin-engine training here is done on the Griffin? Yes. Okay. Could you just give me a quick run-through of what's involved in the course, the ground school, timings, the type of flying that's done? Okay, well, it's a 40-week course, and it's in various modules. It starts off with a, a two-week ground school, then it moves into a, an eight-week or so conversion to type phase where they learn how to fly the, the Griffin aircraft as opposed to the Squirrel that uh, they've just graduated from. Uh, then they move into a block of more advanced uh, sort of handling, such as instrument flying, which includes procedural instrument flying, uh, low-level navigation, confined area flying, underslung loads, uh, which is a, a new skill. Uh, furthermore, um, night flying, which involves night vision uh, goggle work as well as reversionary night flying and search and rescue training. Uh, there are aspects of simulated uh, uh, training, synthetic training in the simulator uh, that we have here at Shawbury within that. And then finally they move on to um, a mission management, uh, again a more low level navigation type phase towards the end of the course which culminates in an end of course check. And within the whole thing, they are learning how to operate a, a multi-engine aircraft with a crew uh, throughout. And uh, Graham can comment a bit more on the multi-engine aspects, uh, sorry, the, the crew aspects. Just to add to what uh, Jason has said, the, uh, the crewmen um, do a slightly different lead-in to the course. Uh, they arrive here from RF Cranwell um, and they do a five-week rotary wing lead-in course as well as a very a part of the single engine course where they learn about principles of flight and, and met, etc. Uh, they then join their pilot colleagues at the start of the, the Miro course. So they're actually they're here for probably around about uh, 48 weeks altogether for the course. 
typically the jobs that the crewmen would be involved in? Well, the crewmen is involved in all aspects of the flying of the aircraft, um, from, from the planning phase all the way through to the execution. Um, they are, in, in essence, the pilot's eyes in the back of the aircraft. In essence, also, they're also the, the, the extra little bit of capacity in the cabin who can have a, with a better overall view of what's going on from a mission point of view, and they can actually put interject where, as required to help out the front end okay. and offload some of the workload as well. And what we're introducing with the crewmen here is the concept of moving on to much larger helicopter types such as the Chinook, Merlin and Puma where it's absolutely essential to have that extra set of eyes watching the tail and the tips of the blades etc to get the, the aircraft into more confined uh, spaces. I should also add that at the end of this course all graduates receive their flying brevet so that's uh, their wings effectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, which marks them out as qualified pilots and uh, qualified crewmen. Uh, and when you look at the, the packages at whole, as a whole, it contains all the elements of operation uh, that are then used for their onward operational aircraft type. So they are competent, well-rounded uh, characters at the end of it. Okay, excellent. The single-engine guys mentioned that they test everybody at various stages. Could you give me sort of a, an attrition rate from people that start the course to... Yeah, the, there are a few um, checks still within this course. It's, it's, it's yep. part of the overall way of things. There's um, a check at the end of the conversion to typeface to ensure that they're competent in handling the aircraft and progress to the more advanced elements of the course. There's also a navigation check for the same reasons. Um, and then towards the end of the course, there's an end-of-course check, uh, which uh, is, is the final test to make sure they are fully ready in uh, all respects. The attrition rate of the course uh, catered for is, a, is about the 5% mark, but recently we've been achieving 3 to 4%. Good stuff. Could you say how the relationship between the instructor, instructor and crew varies, pilots and crewmen? Well, we, the, the squadron as a whole, we, we try and foster a, the same sort of ethos as the guys would have uh, come across on an operational squadron. So the squadron is structured around an operational squadron's structure. We try very much to uh, integrate the students into all parts of squadron life. So as far as that's concerned, there's very little difference between front, and, uh, front, front end uh, squadrons and, and the rear echelon here. Um, there's always going to be a division between the instructor and the, and the student. Uh, however, we try and foster it to be such that it's as close as possible. The guys get on with us. We try and get on with the guys as much as possible as well. And uh, they are integrated in as, into as much of the squadron life as we can get them into. In the flying, do you move on to uh, flying in formation at this point? The, the formation flying happens towards the end of the course in the tactical mission management phase. Right. Um, and in, in that final uh, several weeks of the course... We introduce them for the first time to trail formation, which is uh, useful for operating at low level. It provides a good ability to, for all formation elements to manoeuvre freely and provide mutual support uh, to the other elements of the formation. And that's continued for uh, a number of hours right, right the way through to the end of course test from, from that point. Okay. Search and rescue training. Could you give me sort of a brief overview of that, what SARTU training takes place? Yeah, well, currently it involves uh, a number of sorties uh, of mountain flying. So that develops them from 
the ability to transit through the mountains to make uh, basic approaches to uh, what we call standard mountain features such as ridges, pinnacles, spurs and valleys and bowls. And then by the end of the, uh, the course they have the opportunity to uh, look at some of the more advanced techniques that can be used to achieve a landing on some of these features. Is that where Graham's men come in? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, the guys get a look-see, and it is only a look-see, a, a brief overview of uh, winch operating skills, winch man skills as well, which is very difficult to sort of pinpoint because at the end of the day you're going down to a survivor who be, will be doing anything to everything to try and get hold of you. So you try and get, give them a good idea of what, what's involved with it as well. Yep. And it's also a completely different departure for what their previous training has been, on the squadron here because now they're on their own they can't communicate with anybody apart from hand signals yeah and they're operating in an alien environment so actually it's very good character building stuff for the guys as well and most of them really enjoy it the SAR 2 is the search and rescue rescue training unit and that's based at RF Valley, RF Valley. Yeah. Right. once your students have qualified here what's their sort of route to the front line after leaving DHFS yeah so they um, graduate here with the uh, um, wings or brevets uh, they then move on to an operational conversion flight on one of the operational aircraft types that they are role disposed to. So that would be the Chinook, Merlin or the Puma typically. Uh, that's a, an, another course, another flying course in itself. They'll need to learn the technical aspects of that aircraft in a further ground school uh, and then complete the various uh, flying requirements of that course. And they'll emerge from that course or those courses what we call limited combat ready, which means that they're prepared to undertake a controlled role um, on their aircraft type in an operational theatre. Uh, the Army will leave the single engine phase of the, of the school here and move to the operational training programme at Middle Wallop, where they'll remain on the squirrel and, but develop their flying skills into uh, more, more applied techniques such as things like formation and night tactical formation and the various requirements that the army have uh, down there. And from there they'll move on to effectively an operational conversion flight again where they'll convert to their front line aircraft type such as the Lynx or the Apache initially and then again carry out some more applied flying so that they once again emerge as limited combat ready and able to deploy on operations um, similarly. The Navy finish the single engine element of the um, school here and they move directly generally to an operational type uh, such as the Sea King of the Lynx and they go through a slightly longer course on this operational type and emerge again uh, able to deploy to a theatre. And your sort of personal history, why did you guys join up in the first place? Well, I come from a long line. My father and mother were in the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, my two brothers were in the Air Force. My sisters both married into the Air Force. Um, <laughs> so it was all, almost inevitable that I was going to join the Air yeah. Force. And I've been in for 25 years this year. Um, so you've seen some great changes in the RF over that time? Indeed. I mean, when I joined, there was over 100,000 personnel in the Royal Air Force. And now we're down to about uh, 40,000. So, uh, yes, huge changes. Um, when I joined the Royal Air Force, we had uh, stations in Hong Kong uh, and RF Germany, of course, and that's all gone. Did you go to all these places? Well, I, with my father, I was lucky enough to go out to the Far East and to Malaysia and to Cyprus. Um, but um, w 
in my own service, I've served in RF Germany, in Northern Ireland, uh, on operations, and uh, in the peacetime out there as well, operations in Bosnia and operations in Iraq as well. Have you been always in helicopters or fixed wing as well? Oh, that's 25 years of helicopters. Yeah. yeah I started off on Chinooks. Um, I then went to Wessex, became an instructor, um, taught on the Wessex then, and then I came here in the early, in the, sorry, in the late 90s, and then I went down to help form 28 Squadron with the Merlins in 2001. And I was with, on the squadron for five years. I then spent uh, 18 months on the standards and evaluation flight at RAF Benson before coming here again. And Jason? Yes, well, uh, I, I joined up 16 years ago. Again, I have to admit that uh, my father was in the RAF as well. Yep. Um, however, I mean, the reason I, I joined up was I, I finished a, a degree at university. I went round the uh, milk round looking at the various job opportunities that were available for me and having done a degree in engineering at the time it, I can tell you it wasn't particularly uh, uh, appetising what I saw and I've got to also say that I, at, at the time the Air Force wasn't really or well, my early days at university the Air Force wasn't really on my radar at all uh, but I, I had a look at it uh, with a, a, a fresh look at it in my final year at university and it, and it looked... Um, and it looked pretty good from the outside. Like I say, it seemed to me that on the engineering side it was going to get a bit, uh, a bit uh, desk-bound and perhaps, dare I say, it, a little boring and the Air Force seemed to offer me something slightly different. Have they been good to you? Uh, they've been pretty good to me, I've, I've got to say. You know, You've I've been here long enough, haven't you? Oh, I, yeah, well, I mean, on the whole, the Air Force has been very good to me, but um, and this place used to be seen as a sort of uh, a rest tour. Yeah. Uh, I think I've been busier in the last 12 months than I have been on certainly on, on quite a few of my operational tours, yeah. um, the amount of work we have to do. So I wouldn't call it a rest tour anymore. Um, but certainly the, the Air Force is given, uh, pays a good wage for a start off. Um, and there's a, there is the built-in teamwork and fa um, camaraderie that you find in the forces. Uh, on the downside, you do spend a lot of time away from home, away from your family and particularly with younger children it can be very difficult on family life uh, when you when dad's not there yep. when you know when little johnny comes home with, and he's cut his finger and all the rest of it that's that's the hard time then and of course then we're reliant on wives partners etc to step into the place that we've we've left vacant yep. and fill the pot and it's hard on them as well so it's it's good it has its good and bad sides i would echo what graham says there uh, as a father of three, it definitely places uh, is a big ask on the families. Yep. Um, at times it can be a big ask of individuals as well, because uh, what we're talking about here is public service. So although the pay is good, it's, it, uh, it may not be the best you could achieve. But like I say, you know, this is, there's an element of recognition that this is public service here as well. Yep. I suppose if you have a family, being shot at gets old fairly quickly, doesn't it? And you've both been to Iraq? Yes. yes. Indeed, yeah. It, um, it can concentrate the mind at times, mm. yeah. Mm. Okay, and giving you time over again, I think I know the answer to this one, but if you were a teenager now, would you do it again? I don't know. I really don't know whether I would. It, given today's climate, etc. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, knowing what I know, I probably would do. Yeah. But being a teenager now, I mean, my son asked me, I've got a 23-year-old son, and he asked me a few years ago whether, whether I should, he should join the Air Force. And whilst I would not dissuade him from joining the Air Force... Yeah. I certainly would um, make make sure he long, thought long and hard about joining it.
Because? Because there, there are, when I joined the Air Force, we were fought, fighting the Cold War, yeah. and that seemed to be a long way away. Now that the, the war is actually very close at hand, mm -hmm. and it's on the TV every day, yeah. um, it isn't for, all, for everybody, I don't think. And I don't think at the moment, um, despite some of the moves um, by, um, by the government to try and reinforce the public's image of the armed forces, I still don't think we have the full support of the British public. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of them are very good to us. Yeah. But I still don't think we f enjoy the full support of the British public. I suspect that um, the younger generation may want to be more keen on perhaps dipping into uh, a bit of life within the armed forces mm -hmm. for a number of years. I, I don't think they, w they will perhaps see it as a, a lifelong vocation which I think uh, my generation, or perhaps folks slightly older than me, yep. have, uh, have looked at it okay. as uh, I think it's something that the armed forces may need to uh, get their head around people dipping in for eight to ten years yep. and then pursuing another career, having you know, seen a few things and, uh, and been satisfied within themselves that they've done something slightly different, yep. but wanting to move on. When, having spoken to various chaps, the opportunities to do do you call it extracurricular activities like mm. skiing, mountaineering, you name it, you can do it, can't you? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> that right? The problem is, the more and more demands are asked on the, on, on the front line, the less and less opportunities there are to go and do these yep. extracurricular or adventure training or whatever. Um, so it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, really. I mean, yes, we do need to have, to have the opportunities to work on teamwork, leadership, and also, mo mo probably most importantly, to let her hair down a little bit. Yep. Um, what you can remember is every time somebody goes away on an adventure training course, somebody else has to do his job. Yep. It does sound more and more like it is becoming a job, and it's almost treated like a, an occupation. You've got, you've got your activities to do, and if you can get time off, you can well, go and do I other mean, things. The traditional orientation of service life may, may, may need to change, um, depending upon... Um, the outlook of the people within it. Uh, for example, it, it has been traditional to move move around every two, three, four years. Mm -hmm. Given the price of housing, that might not be feasible anymore. Yep. So it may need to necessarily become some something where people are generally based in one location and uh, and travel around perhaps less than than the historical norm. Okay. Well, thank you very <coughs> much, uh, Graham and Jason. No problem thank at you. all. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Squadron leader Jason Bowes and Master Aircrew Graham Longmuir from 60 Squadron. Corporal Neil Moncur runs the flight planning facility at RAF Shawbury. Having had a guided tour of the base, I saw how Neil was helping the students plan their training sorties, and so I asked him to give me a brief summary of his role here at DHFS. Uh, hi, Neil. Good morning, Steve. Uh, right, um... You are a corporal in the flight planning department here at uh, RAF Shawbury. Uh, what exactly is uh, flight planning and what's your role? Uh, as you said, uh, Steve, I am Corporal Neil Monker and I'm currently in charge of the flight planning facility here at RAF Shawbury. Uh, just as some uh, background for your listeners, my job in the RAF is as a flight operations assistant and this particular trade is probably the most closely associated with the direct support of aircraft operations. Members of this specialisation can be employed in air traffic control towers, area radar centres such as Swanwick and Presswick. Uh, we even have people at Eurocontrol in Brussels. And also both squadron and station operations rooms. 
some other more unusual tasks include the Air Rescue Coordination Centre at Kinloss. Uh, we have some people at bombing ranges and we also have people working alongside the Army giving them support with their aircraft tasking. So it's a really diverse trade. Uh, anyone listening who may have an interest in a career involving aviation operations, this would be an ideal RAF job for them. And uh, the RAF website has info on this and indeed all trades under the career section. So my current task uh, here is to manage and run the flight planning room which is contained within the main station operations building at Shawbury. It's uh, affectionately referred to as the Brown House, probably because it's built from rather drab brown pre-war bricks. <laughs> yep. Uh, the idea behind flight planning is that it's a self-briefing facility, so aircrew can come in at any time and brief themselves on all aeronautical information. Uh, this could be notices to airmen, NOTAMs, royal flight details. Uh, they can acquire all mapping, charts and documents, and that's for national and international requirements. Uh, I also act as a facilitator to help them with all their planning requirements. I can be called on to give both verbal and written advice on airspace structure, areas of responsibility and air traffic services, departure, en route and approach procedures. Of course, you can also request the handling of flight plans and their transmission via the uh, Aeronautical Fixed Telecommunications Network, the AFTN, and I currently use my Mill EAMS terminal for that purpose. Uh, this is a system that's currently leased from NATS, pending the RAF developing their own system. It's a bit of a legacy, actually. We did try and it failed, so we've had to uh, lease this from NATS straight off the shelf as it works. Uh, this is also where I obtain all my NOTAM signals from. Uh, I think most listeners might be familiar with uh, NATS AFPEX. Have you heard of that? This is exactly what I use here at Shawbury. Uh, and just as a side, my IKEO address is Echo Golf, Oscar Sierra, Yankee Whiskey, Yankee Foxtrot. So anybody can speak to me anywhere in the world with that address. Uh, actually, just as a point of interest, ideally staff employed in any NATO flight planning section should ideally be bilingual. I found this in a book somewhere. <laughs> So I'm afraid I fall short of this requirement, unless, of course, you include Scottish course, as yeah. an additional yeah. language. Uh, we have recently had a number of foreign crews pass through here. We had some athletics championships at nearby Cosford, and we had some German and uh, Belgian crews, and they all speak perfect English, so it's a bit of a cop-out. I get, I get by. <laughs> uh, flight planning at Shawbury differs slightly from other RAF stations in that it has a dual role. It acts as an extension of the DHFS classroom. Uh, as you may have already heard on this podcast, Shawbury's role is to train helicopter pilots and crews, and a lot of their time is spent planning navigational trips in the flight planning room. I carry a lot of different mapping. The most frequently used is the special air chart sheet 3, that's quarter mil scale. Uh, I can go through as many as 50 in one week, depending on what part of the course the students are at. Uh, these will differ slightly from the CA maps that you'll probably use. Yep. Uh, that's a military version. Uh, our maps are produced for us at the Defence Geographic Centre at Feltham and Middlesex. Uh, and likewise, our 50,000 OS sheets, which carry the blue obstruction and power line overprint data. Uh, I've, I don't know if you're familiar with them, if you've seen them. Yep. Uh, documents uh, for the RAF and for all the uh, military are produced in-house for, for us by Number One Aeronautical Document Unit, and that's based at RAF Northolt. Along with maps, charts and documents, I also have a vast arsenal of planning materials, the standard sort of items, stationery, uh, stencils, strike rules. Uh, I've also got quite a smart industrial laminating machine, which is used a lot, and two colour photocopiers. So it's quite a good facility, it's, uh, it, and it's well used. Uh, I also have a full library of planning documents, uh, the military low-flying handbook, uh, terminal charts, plates, and I can also access foreign, civil and military AIPs and documents via the Millflip website, uh, which is a new system that's up and running, uh, produced by Northolt. 
so we could actually go online and access all documents electronically. Okay. I've got most eventualities covered here at uh, Flight Planning. I've also recently had installed a projector and screen so I can carry out briefings in the, in the room and this is also equipped with a Freeview TV receiver and it's not to watch the World Cup on, <laughs> although it does have its uses, but it is actually very handy. Uh, now, the Icelandic volcanic ash cloud is a, cl is a prime example. We were all sitting about waiting, are we going, are we not? I, I could put on News24 or Sky and they actually had the most up-to-date information. Yeah. By the time it filters down to us, it's, it's you know, hours old. You did, you did have to pretty much stop training here, didn't you? We did, yeah. The, uh, the Met Office actually were giving us uh, constant briefings on where the ash cloud was and depending on where it was in the country and the concentration of it, the uh, flying was curtailed. Yep. And it would be foolhardy to go flying. I think some people did and they, they landed and they found a load of ash in their engines. Yep. And I believe there was a uh, typhoon which just was on the edge of the ash cloud and it landed and it was full of, uh, full of ash. Expensive job. Yeah, it was a full engine refit, I think. So it's very busy here at Shawbury. It's, uh, I suppose it's a bit of a, a sausage factory. Uh, it's a never-ending task here because of the uh, natural wastage in the helicopter world. We've got to keep on filling empty slots. With That's only people leaving, not being shot. <laughs> no, <laughs> luckily enough, not at the moment anyway. But yeah, there's uh, quite a high turnover of people, so there's new fresh blood arriving all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's quite satisfying to watch the progression of the students from uh, ab initio helicopter pilots to their graduation and know that I've been, okay, a small part, but I've been a help uh, along the way in their training. Uh, in fact, I've quite recently returned back into the UK from a four-month deployment in support of helicopter operations in Afghanistan. And I was working with some of the aircrew that had been through Shawbury in the last couple of years. So I saw the full cycle there, straight from uh, walking in the door, trainee, never flown a helicopter before, to aircraft captain in a hostile environment. Yep. Afghanistan was, uh, was a little bit different from flight planning at Shawbury. It's a bit more routine here. Over there, it was a, it was a bit mad. <laughs> you had to, there's a bit of a, a used phrase in the Air Force, hit the ground running. Well, that was very much the case straight in off the aircraft, straight into work and didn't know what to expect and it was, uh, it was a bit of a, an eye-opener. I was running the Joint Helicopter Force Afghanistan Operations Desk, which is a tri-service organisation dealing with all aspects of uh, helicopter tasking for the UK element. So that's the uh, Royal Navy Sea King Commando Helicopter Force, the Army Air Cohadar Apaches and Lynx, and the RAF, obviously the Chinooks. Uh, daily tasking could be routine because, I mean, helicopters are the the buses and the trucks in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. moving people and supplies. Or it could have been uh, a deliberate op whereby we're actually planning a, maybe an insertion into a village with uh, troops. And these were quite regular, at least one a week we had a deliberate op. Uh, although the uh, UK Special Forces have their own dedicated air element with them, uh, we also dealt with some of their additional tasking along with other nations' uh, Special Forces. Some of the nations turned up with Special Forces but no aircraft, so if they needed to go in, we'd sometimes picked up that tasking. Uh, over and above that, the Chinooks also covered the uh, IRT uh, task, which is on the news quite regularly with the, uh, the medical teams going in and picking up the casualties, so that was also quite a, a, a difficult time. Yep. Uh, but it's back to Shawbury and normality for me for a while, and uh, awaiting my next deployment, which could well be back to Afghanistan. Uh, it could be Camp Bastion air traffic, because although I work in flight planning, I can be called upon to work in any of the trade disciplines. Uh, including ATC. Isn't Camp Bastion supposed to be one of the busiest airports in the world in terms of movements? Uh, I think it is. It's definitely the busiest RAF uh, uh, station that we have. Uh, as far as 
the, the busiest in the world. It could be well up there. Yeah. I'm actually uh, thinking of flying down this way on, on Thursday, down to Wolverhampton from Manchester. What sort of airspace do you have around here, Neil? Well, uh, RAF Shawbury uh, has it, its own dedicated user area, which is part of the military low-flying system. Uh, There's just a number of areas split up across the country. Shawbury's is LFA9. Uh, we're the coordinating authority uh, for that. So that's for military low-flying, ground level to 2,000 feet, which is Class G airspace. Uh, and we have to book into that. To, to fly, uh, to fly in the low-level system, which is actually quite. I, I automatically asked uh, someone at the weekend. We had Arif Cosford Air Show, yeah. and we were doing some of the support for it. And I had uh, a Tornado pilot from Treble One Squadron, Arif Lukers. He flies one of the uh, Team Viper uh, Strike Masters. Now that is now a demobbed aircraft, it's now civilian registered aircraft, mm -hmm. but it is still a, technically a jet fighter and yep. he is a member of the Air Force, but because he was flying in a civilian capacity, he booked out with me and I said, oh, you'll need to put a low flying booking in. And he went, I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a civvy. Yeah. So, I thought, so I sort of caught myself out a bit there because I just automatically thought, right, yeah. you'll, need to, you'll need to book in. Yeah. But of course, you guys don't have to. Yeah. It's only for the military. Yeah. There were some nice aircraft in here yesterday, weren't there? I noticed the, uh, the red arrows were flying out. Yeah, we had the reds, we had a couple of typhoons. They bring a spare with them in case one goes US. Uh, three tornadoes from Lossiemouth, 15 squadron. There was uh, a sabre as well. There it? was a sabre and there was also a, a hunter uh, in quite a nice colour scheme, yes. if, if yeah. anybody's seen that, with yeah. sort of stars and sunburst on the nose. Yeah, very nice. Okay, well, thank you very much, Neil. No problem. Set alongside Neil during our chat was Paul Gresty. Paul works for the Met Office, but he's based here at RAF Shawbury. Obviously, when planning a flight, one of the first things you need to know about is the weather. So Paul and his team of six forecasters play an extremely important role on the base. I was interested to know what the Met Office guys did day to day and was surprised to find that they even get posted abroad to support frontline troops. At the end of the interview with Paul, I asked Neil Moncur how they use the weather data supplied by the Met Office. Hi Paul. Morning Steve. Good morning. Um, for the Met Office based down here at RF Shawbury, what would you say a, a typical day involved, if there is such a thing? Well there's never such a typical day in the world of, of, of weather, every day is different, but um, basically the team here uh, works uh, shifts, we do either a morning shift or uh, an evening shift. The morning shift will start at six in the morning till two in the afternoon, and then we'll swap over. And the evening shift will start from two, and we'll continue until the end of flying. Now we do a lot of night flying here, so particularly this time of the year, that can be two in the morning, um, and then um, you'll, you'll finish your shift, and the next person comes back on at six. How many are there of you in the team? Uh, there's a team of of six altogether. Um, and we do not only the forecasting but the observing. Uh, one of those, one member of that team is actually a dedicated instructor um, because the, all the students here uh, do a ground school before they start the flying and one of the subjects is meteorology. Um, so one of the guys does nothing but instructing all the ground schools. Right, so you actually teach the, uh, the trainee students? Ye yes, because right. uh, meteorology is one of the core subjects sure, which yeah. they, um, yeah. they need to know. And uh, one of the other guys is part-time here at Shoreby. He spends the rest of his time in the mobile MET unit and um, he goes on operations overseas and he's currently in Camp Bassi in Af Afghanistan. Actually send the MET guys abroad to battle zones? 
We do indeed, yes. He's, I suppose he's, you need them out there, don't you, really? Yep. Um, he's actually um, in the... Uh, he's a f uh, flight lieutenant in the uh, RAF Reserve. So he's been... He's had his sort of full train, military training. So he, he's equipped and ready to go into, into the battle zones, as yep. you say. Have you been abroad yourself? I used to be in the mobile met unit myself. Um, I came out in two, uh, 2000, uh, so I spent five years. So, yeah, I've been to various places overseas, Kuwait, um, Turkey, um, Italy, and Croatia. The weather forecasting in Kuwait, pretty straightforward. <laughs> well, you might think so, but it, it yeah. was... <laughs> Sunny all day. I, I did two tours there. The first, the first tour was in sort of late spring going to summer, and it, yeah... You hardly see a cloud in the sky, but you still, there are still issues with the sure, weather, yeah. uh, like, like the heat, um, yeah. uh, and wind can be a factor as well. Yeah. How, how do the skills of a, a military-based Met officer vary from a civilian, or are they the same? No, I think that they're, they're quite distinct, actually, because a military forecaster, particularly at somewhere like Shawbury, where all the aircraft or helicopters, in our case, are flying low level, i.e. below 2,000 feet, yeah. We need to really hone in on our sort of low-level forecasting abilities. So you know, everyone's interested in cloud bases, uh, visibility, wind speed, wind direction, to quite a lot of detail. Um, whereas at a, um, uh, a civilian forecaster, primarily they're issuing um, TAFs for all civilian airfields yep. and will be issuing um, a writing out of Form 215, which covers the whole of the UK. Yep. Um, uh, so there are quite a, quite big differences. Right. And you were saying earlier that um, only military airfields now have Met officers based on the field? That, that's correct, that's yes. Uh, yeah, um, you know, when I first joined the Met office, all the big airfield, airports, Manchester, Heathrow, etc., had their own dedicated yep. uh, Met, Met offices with uh, a big complement of staff doing forecasting and observing. But um, over the years, um, those Met offices have all closed. So... All the uh, forecasting for the airports in the UK now are done centrally at our Met Office at, at uh, Exeter. Okay. Um, you mentioned some of the forms that you uh, print here for the military. Um, do you produce like the normal 214, 215s? Uh, do you present them in the same way? We don't actually write them ourselves, but we do get um, copies um, okay. from Exeter and we will issue uh, those forms to aircrew. When they're, when they're flying away from, from the LFA, yep. when they're going on landaways to other parts of the country, because they have to have a, what we call a, a route forecast, and that, that's part of a, the route forecast package. Okay, and I noticed um, at one of the pilot briefings this morning that you produce a different form, which is like a cross-section of the clouds, which I thought would be great for GA pilots, which shows you like a side view of the atmosphere, low level, with all the clouds marked on, which I thought was a great thing. Yeah, cross-section aircrew love it, yeah, because they can, inst they can look at it and instantly see what the weather's going to be throughout the day uh, in terms of, of the cloud, because as, as you saw yourself, the clouds are nicely coloured in, yeah. and there's a vertical scale, so they can see straight away at whatever time they're interested in what the forecast cloud base is going to be, yeah. and they can look at the visibility, the type of weather, wind direction, wind speed, at any time of interest through, yep. through that day. That would be great for GA, I would think. I also noticed that you have a colour code system for the military, which us civilian pilots don't get to see. That's right, yes. Just explain how that works. Well, it works. Um, we've got this colour color code system, as you say, and it, it ranges from blue, which is very good weather, to red, which is very poor weather. Uh, now, 
good or bad weather is dependent in this case on, on cloud base and visibility. So blue, for example, is a cloud base above 2,500 feet and or visibility better than uh, 7 kilometres, whereas red goes right down the other end of the scale. Visibility is uh, less than 800 metres, cloud base 100 feet or lower. Uh, so it ranges from blue, good, and it goes white, green, yellow one, yellow two, amber, and red. So the conditions deteriorate as you go from blue down to red. Okay. Uh, so air crew love it because, they, they, as you saw at, um, in the brief this morning, uh, we show a map of the colour codes throughout the country. So any air crew can look at the map and instantly see where good or bad weather is, bearing in mind that's dependent on just visibility and cloud base. Yeah. So they've got to consider the, the wind, especially low-level helicopters. Well, exactly, yes. So particularly here at Shawby, a training base, uh, wind, particularly wind speed, is crucially important. And the colour code system doesn't, doesn't uh, factor in uh, the wind speed or direction. Can I ask you a question relating to the uh, MET forecast for aviators in general? Why is it still abbreviated in the way that it is in a Taflin meta? Yeah, uh, I think two, two reasons, really. Um, First of all, TAFs and METAR, it's an international code. So um, TAFs and METAR is used right around the world. So um, a, an aviator in China, for example, yep. uh, if he's flying to another part of the world, can instantly see the forecast or decipher the forecast and, and the, uh, the actual weather using TAFs and METARs. Okay. And it's, it's a nice, as you said, a nice abbreviated way of, of of telling you what the forecast or what the actual weather is, yeah. rather than writing it out in longhand yeah. in Chinese or English or whatever yeah. other okay. language. And how do you guys get to, uh, Neil, I'm talking to you now, how do you guys get to take this weather on board? Uh, well, uh, because I'm uh, my initial training in, in the air traffic world, I also got uh, taught basic MET. Uh, the pilots can access the MET information from flight planning via the MOMIDS computer. We're, Currently in flight planning at Shawbury, we've still got a Moments 1 uh, computer, which is actually moribund. When, when, that, when that eventually fails, it won't be getting uh, it fixed. Moments 2G is now an internet-based facility, and that can be gained from the Met Office uh, Met Services website. So we're moving, even the Met Office in flight planning at Shawbury will have to move forward with the times. Eventually, my Moments machine will be upgraded. Uh, but that gets used a lot, as well as obviously verbal briefs from the Met Office. They can access it electronically. Uh, it's, a, it's a good system. It's used a lot. And do the pilots actually go and see the Met guys physically, go and come into your office and ask for uh, winds and such like? Oh, routine, regularly, yeah. routinely, yeah. yes. Um, particularly winds. Uh, we get a lot of inquiries on, uh, for wind direction, wind speed yeah. at a certain place, certain time um, during, during the day. So, yeah, they come in to see us or ring us up, or we, we go and see them. Um, at the at our morning briefs. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's fine. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, thank you. Paul Gresty from the Met Office there. Lastly, I thought it would be interesting to hear from a couple of the students here at DHFS. Flight Lieutenants Keith Lamb and Becky Corrigan talked briefly about why they joined up, what drew them to flying helicopters, and how they ended up in 60 Squadron at the Defence Helicopter Flying School. Okay, hi Keith. Hi Becky. Hi there. Um, how did you end up learning to fly helicopters here at Shawbury? Uh, I began on a university air squadron and then from there went on and got a bursary, applied to the Air Force when I was still at university. And you always wanted to fly? Yes. 
mm -hmm. since we're a wee girl. Mm -hmm. No one even remembers when it started. It's been going on for that long. Yeah. <laughs> Keith? Uh, well, I joined the university air squadron as well. Um, I was studying engineering at the time and had a view to join going to the Formula One. But uh, over the three years at the UAS, I could see various parts of the Air Force and I re quickly realised that this was much more fun and uh, this is what I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, I, I did the flying as well at uni and then, uh, which, um, and then afterwards I decided to join and then uh, managed to get in as a pilot and then uh, here I am. You've always been into helicopters or just flying in general, general you're interested in? Uh, got, in, got into flying, uh, quite enjoyed flying, and then realised helicopters was so flexible, it was so much fun, and uh, yeah, that's what really got me into it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and you've mentioned university, but uh, what since then, since you've joined up, what sort of training have you had? Um, Fixed wing? Yeah, firstly went and did officer training yep. for about nine months, and then started on uh, basic fixed wing, which is uh, on the tutor. The grub. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned to fly on. <laughs> and then after that, uh, came here. Okay. Keith? Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah. And you're both RAF background, aren't you? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. What stage are you at in your training here? I see you're both 60 Squadron. So that indicates you're on twins. Yep. Yes. So you've completed your single. Yes. Yep. So mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you find that? Um, single, single engine helicopter, um, it was purely um, handling. Uh, lots of fun. <laughs> yeah. um, it was learning to fly the helicopter really and doing things like low-level nav, um, flying into confined areas, uh, night flying and, and now coming on to multi-engine it's more to do with working with the crew, yep. um, doing things like underslung loads where we we can't be in complete control, we need require someone else to help us um, look, um, direct us and, and also operating a twin-engine helicopter is quite different yep. and the priorities has changed as well. In what way? Just with the crew or the actual operation of the helicopter? Um, yeah, with the crew you've got, you've got to commu communicate a lot more yep. and also certain emergencies like having the engine failure is not the end of the world anymore. True, you know, you've yeah. got two engines so yep. it's, uh, you've got to change your way of thinking and prioritising. So I noticed on the, I had a look at the sim this morning I think on the, on the Griffin, if you yeah. lose one, heli uh, one engine you still got 97% power. Yeah, 97%. Two <laughs> percent. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. The ninety, the ninety-seven is the RPM, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, is it? You can right. increase that back up to one hundred anyway. Right. Have you found anything particularly difficult so far? Anything particularly stressful? Uh, when I first got here, I couldn't hover to save my life. It's impossible, isn't it, hovering? Um, so <laughs> I, I just found that the very initial bit, switching from fixed wing to rotary, was um, the bit that I found difficult so far. Mm. But once that clicked, that was fine. There's nothing else to it, really, is there? <laughs> just go forward a little bit and backwards a little bit. Any stressful yeah. things that occur to you? Or is it just constant? Um, well, mainly coming to, to uh, tests and check rides, that's when it becomes stressful. But uh, the instructors remind us that we've passed everything up to there, so that yeah. means you can do it anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's just self-induced stress. And you don't get any time off during the course? It's solid from beginning to end? They try to fit time off, but yeah. generally it works out that you don't get much time off right yeah well, we had some leave in between 660 and 705 and then again between 705 and 60 right uh, and you're both due i presume to go off to the likes of afghanistan have you got any thoughts on uh, frontline action um well we've got to pass this course first uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well hopefully going going into the chinook 
Chinook world. Yeah, it's very capable aircraft. And uh, the things they do out in Afghanistan is quite impressive as well. The, the things that they can uh, carry and the troops they move around. And yeah, that, that kind of thing is quite exciting, yeah, quite appealing. Is that where you want to end up as well, Becky, on Chinooks? I think so, yeah. Uh, do you have any sort of hopes other than you know, flying Chinooks where you want to be in the RAF or post-RAF, what you'd like to do? I think once I've left the RAF, I'd quite like to uh, go into civilian search and rescue okay. or uh, police helicopter flying, that kind of thing. You should listen to one of my episodes about police flying helicopters in Manchester. Oh. Great job. Keith? Um, I'd like to, to carry on, on flying. Um, for as long as I can, but I, I've not really planned on exactly what. It's so a long it's, way off. Yeah, it is a long way off, yeah. Uh, what sort of things do you get up to uh, outside of flying, either of you? I do quite a lot of uh, kendo. Yeah. And uh, I was quite lucky the Air Force has recently started a team for kendo, and we've been uh, going to fight the Army and the Navy quite often. And, yeah, they're quite supportive. Um, you know, accommodation, travel, time off work, it's quite good. Yeah, it sounds makes like one of the key benefits of the armed forces is you do get to do all these things and there are places to go and yeah, really facilitate it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's lots of courses you can go on uh, when you've got the time. Yeah, so everybody says if mm. you get the time, you can do it. It's uh, yeah, it is important to have a change of scenery um, at work. You, you can't con be constantly training, constantly going out to war. You've got to you know have have a bit of time off, enjoy yourself, and uh, yeah, they're quite accommodating. Yeah. Do you get up to anything? Uh, I used to do a fair bit of rowing at university, and I've rowed for the uh, Air Force since then. Yep. Uh, more recently, I've taken up swimming instead because I'm uh, a bit too injured for rowing at the moment. <laughs> OK. And once you're finished here at Shawbury, where do you get sent? Uh, we don't find out until we've actually finished the course. So yeah, assuming so you do, you get posted off somewhere to... Yeah, mm -hmm. either Benson or Odium uh, onto the OCFs. Right. And then uh, carry on training. Where are the Chinooks based? Odium. Odium. Yeah. Where's, where's Odium? Near Aldershot, near Farnborough. Okay. Yeah. Great stuff. Would you recommend joining the forces to your friends? If It takes a certain character. I don't think it will suit everybody. Um, what sort of character do you think it needs to do what you do? So, somebody who's quite proactive. You know, he sets targets and I think somebody who's hungry for it. You know, you can't just plod along and get along in this in this job is quite cutthroat you know you, yeah. you've got to meet the standards or, or you're gone so you've really got to be hungry particularly learning to fly helicopters you i think you need a certain personality trait don't you uh well yeah working as a crew environment yeah you've got to be patient and you've got to you know understand each other's jobs and yeah I think you've got to be very self-motivated mm. and self-assured as well yeah to get your uh, opinions across to the rest of the crew do you think they look for sort of management skills as well? Man management skills? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely. Just interpersonal skills. You, I mean, you can't just s impose your authority on someone because uh, someone's st they've still got to watch your back and you've still got to trust them. They've got to trust you. So yeah. it's got to be a bit more personal than that. This is a very sort of team environment, isn't it? It's definitely not a place for loners and yeah. individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Particularly, you know, found here particularly you know, the relationship with the crewmen, etc., as you've mentioned. Hmm, that's right, yeah. Okay. And Becky, would you recommend this to your younger friends? I would have to consider it on a case-by-case -case basis <laughs> <laughs> because I know the different personalities of my friends and yeah. I know some that it would completely not suit them and others where I think, yeah, they, they'd actually do really well in the Air Force. Yeah. So I can't really make a generalisation about that one. <laughs>
the thing that put me off because I don't know anything about it was the you know I'm thinking about the discipline that you're always telling you what to do and I thought this wouldn't suit me. No, it's no you, worse than having parents. Yeah, you, you get a certain <laughs> level of autonomy. You don't have to do exactly what everyone tells you. You, yeah. you know, you, you can make it up as you go along sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Okay, well that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Keith and Becky. Brilliant. Thanks that's very much. Right. Thanks to Flight Lieutenants Keith Lamb and Becky Corrigan, and of course to all the other folks that I interviewed today. Special thanks to Flight Lieutenant Stu Walker, who arranged my visit to DHFS and gave me a guided tour of the facility. Uh, the story of Stu's flying career will be told in the third part of these uh, DHFS podcasts. Please don't forget, if you'd like to support the podcast and help to contribute to my uh, ever-increasing hosting fees please follow the links to Amazon that you'll find on the website. That's www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Any purchases that you make on there will provide a very small commission, uh, but doesn't affect the price that you pay. Well, that's it for episode 27. If you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd like to take part, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook by searching for Flying Podcast or click on the Twitter and Facebook links on the website. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.